Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Nap Time is Sacred podcast where we share stories of Muslim women doing amazing work. I'm your host Fusia Abdullahi. And welcome back to another episode of the Nap Time is Sacred podcast. On today's episode, I have with me Dr. Uzma Sayed, who's a New York-based, board-certified infectious diseases specialist with an antimicrobial stewardship committee position, as well as an infection prevention committee who is well-published in pneumonia-related research. She teaches students in high school, college, and medical school, as well as medical residents about her specialty. Dr. Sayed has been featured as an expert on several media outlets on infectious diseases. Dr. Sayed, thank you so much for coming on today's episode. I really appreciate you taking the time. Most welcome. It's my pleasure. For our listeners who are not familiar with you or your work, could you please give us a little bit more information about yourself? Introduce yourself to everyone. Sure. My name is Dr. Uzma Sayed. I'm actually a New York-based infectious disease uh, specialist. I hold uh, several different positions on uh, hospital committees as well as a national committee. And uh, I've done a lot of research on pneumonia and, you know, I have a lot of other uh, interests with the youth and mentorship and just uh, very much involved in the community at large. Mashallah. Um, I don't know if you guys can tell from Dr. Ozma's introduction, but today's episode is going to be about this new virus that's going around that we hopefully can have her shed some light on. Um, so today's episode is going to be about the coronavirus, or if you want to call it the novel coronavirus or COVID-19. Um, it has a lot of names at this point. But um, inshallah, Dr. Sayed, if you can tell us a little bit about what the coronavirus is and just you know where it originated from and any kind of background information that you can give us. Sure, of course. So coronavirus is actually the name of a class of viruses that's been around for some time now. It's only recently, obviously, that it's been so much in the news that people are hearing about it because there are, in fact, different strains of the virus. So there are lots of different types of viruses that cause illnesses in people. And the most common of these usually are respiratory viruses, meaning that they are they cause infection by uh, droplets and by people you know, coughing and sneezing. So coronavirus coronavirus essentially belongs to a group um, of viruses that usually affects mammals and birds and then can be seen um, in humans as well. So people are sort of familiar with a couple of different groups of these viruses in the past that we've had. So the SARS virus, for example, uh, which was prevalent in 2003, was from the same family. The MERS virus, uh, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, was also from the same group of family. So the coronavirus is the general name of the category of the family that the virus comes from. And what we're dealing with right now is a novel strain, which means a new strain that belongs to this general class of viruses. And it most closely resembles the SARS virus um, that we had before. And that's why there's so much different nomenclature that's been given to it. And most recently now, um, it's been referred to as um, SARS-CoV-2. And the disease, the illness that the virus is causing, that's now been classified and is being referred to as COVID-19. Awesome. I hope that clears it up for you guys. So when we're talking about SARS and the Middle Eastern respiratory Mm -hmm. virus, 
what are some of the similarities with that? Because I see a lot of people saying that it's very similar to them, but in terms of when it comes to infection rate and how contagious it is, which one of those is it most similar to? Is it similar to both? Sure. So the thing that's interesting with this novel strain um, and COVID-19 right now is that we're actually in the midst of it right now. Um, There is so much data that's coming in day to day. You know, the outbreak started in December of 2019. So we're still dealing with a very new virus uh, strain of this virus that's there. And uh, the more data that we have, the more that we learn about it. And we're still gathering and everything is really still very fluid. There's a lot of changes. There's a lot of information that's coming to us. We do know that because it's a relative um, closely related to these other um, uh, viruses that we've had in the past, that there's a lot of similarities. And because it belongs to the coronavirus family, um, we do know that it causes illness and the method in which it causes illness. So what we have learned from, you know, December till now is that it's a highly contagious, um, infectious virus that does cause symptoms in a lot of people. And, you know, what they've researched just to give a general overview is that for if you look at one person who's essentially infected with this, there's a potential for 2.5 people that come into contact with that person to contract the virus. Okay. Um, And this is what um, some of the people are talking about right now. When it comes to the regular flu season that we have here in America, what is the infectious rate with that? What is the RO for that? Is it? It's very similar. It's just that you know it's a different it's a different strain. Obviously, it's a different virus, mm-hmm. um, and we're still learning about you know who is highest risk in this and who it affects. The influenza does affect children um, a lot, actually. And what we're seeing with the you know SARS-CoV-2 is that it's really sparing children. Or in fact, you know most likely what we're going to find out is that children probably are infected with it, but are what we call asymptomatic carriers, meaning that they don't really exhibit the symptoms of it. They might have very minor level of, you know, uh, virus in them that they're not really um, exhibiting the symptoms of the illness, whereas adults are having the illness and a special population of adults, specifically older adults, are getting a lot more sick with this and uh, needing to be hospitalized. So I'm so glad that you mentioned that because as like as a mom, I've got four kids, you guys know this. (laughs) My main concern is, oh my God, are my kids going to get sick? (laughs) Specifically, my one son that is immune compromised in the sense that he's got asthma and prone to upper respiratory infections and things like that. Um, so alhamdulillah, I'm glad that children are in general not showing the symptoms or right. have very mild symptoms. Right. From what for we the know, most part. Yeah. For the most for the part. Most, as of now. <laughs> yeah, as of right now. Um, the, all the data that's going on, um, because like you said, this is very new and everything is coming in just, I guess, on an hour to hour basis, depending it's an, on exactly. where you it's are. Where it's an evolution. I mean, we're really in the in the crux of it. So, you know, we're going to have a lot more to talk about by the hour, by the day. Yes. So my question is, if kids are, I guess, right now where we are today, you guys, are either not showing symptoms or they're showing very mild symptoms. Do we know that if those kids are exposed to it and they are not necessarily, I guess, showing the symptoms, Mm -hmm. can they still be giving it to people? Yes. When it comes to because like we're all concerned, like, okay, if my kids yeah. are not getting it, should we or should we not keep our kids home from school after the school system? If there's someone sick in our school or things like that as the news is developing. 
So two separate things I think that you're asking here. So the first part um, I'll address is that even though, you know, children or other adults may not have symptoms, um, what we do know from all the data from China and other countries is that children, in fact, are not being are not really being affected by this. But we do have some teens that have tested positive for it, Mm -hmm. even in the U.S. Um, So it's really a matter of, you know, the spectrum of illness that we're going to see. And what we are seeing is that in the younger children, it's really, uh, you know, not affecting them. But that does not mean that they do not in fact have some level of the virus and that they are not actively shedding it, meaning that they in fact are able to then transmit that to other people. So the first part of it is continuing to teach good hygiene practices, just really focusing on education and honing in on that, that, you know, people need to be really diligent about hand washing, especially in a school setting, especially in places, you know, public places. Um, You really want to teach your children those good habits right from the start. And now is the perfect time to really uh, drill that into them and tell them frequent hand washing, hand hygiene, and, you know, cough etiquette, not coughing into the hands and things like that. And just, you know, what we have to do is we have to practice ways that we can really minimize the amount of transmission that there's going to be. Now, if the children, in fact, are not having any symptoms at all, there's really no way of knowing who might be transmitting the disease, which is why the virus, which is why it becomes a little bit complicated with as far as containment. But what we do need to do as a community is to be really vigilant about the basics of hygiene and cough etiquette and just common sense measures when if you are sick with a fever and a cough, just to try to limit, you know, keep yourself at home, try to limit your exposure to other people, which is then going to continue to spread the virus. And really the the population that we're really most concerned about are those people, as you said, whose immune systems are suppressed, who have underlying lung conditions or heart conditions, and those who are really elderly, who are the ones that are doing much worse with this. So the best thing that we can do is try to have these practices in place and really enforce them so that we try to limit the amount of spread. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because honestly, hand washing would save us from so many different yes. kinds of illnesses. Absolutely. And Absolutely. having younger kids, like even stomach bugs and all those things, like mm-hmm. just washing your hands, it's not a new concept. Absolutely. But, you know, I think one of the, I, I don't even want to say one of the good things about this is that people are, I guess, being more vigilant about hand washing, using hand sanitizer, using uh, hot water and soap and just getting cleaner. I think what people need to remember also is that uh, the hand hygiene, the hand washing is important. The duration that you wash your hands for is equally important where it's a minimum of 20 seconds. And just to put it in perspective that these viruses have this outer lipid layer and the soaps essentially can break that and kill the virus. Same goes for disinfecting surfaces. So, you know, if we're thinking about really being aggressive, we want to really practice these habits that are going to be the most effective in controlling and getting rid of this virus. Yes. And I think, like you said, between cleanliness, just washing your hands regularly and staying home if you're sick, those are going to be the two major things that help us. Um, Unfortunately, we do live in an unsanitary world where people are not (laughs) very cognizant of that sometimes, or just with the way the economy is in the school system with absences and, you know, work and people needing to work. This is, I think, where our country is going to have the most difficult time. Um, if we don't put in stronger measures like other countries are when it comes to limiting exposure. What I do want to talk to you about is as Muslims, we go to the masjid, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and right now we're seeing that Umrah is canceled, even for Americans, is what I just heard a few mm-hmm. minutes ago from someone who was, who was going on Umrah that their trip got canceled. So when it comes to going to the masjid, I cannot tell you guys enough. If you're sick, like honestly, stay home. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're sick with. It could be Corona. Right. It could be the flu, the common cold. Like stay home if you're sick. And I know a lot yeah. of people are thinking, I am a 20 something year old who is super healthy. I'm not going to get an extreme case of the coronavirus. What would you say to someone like that? Right. I think, you know, at this time, what we are seeing is people really need to be judicious with uh, exercise and common sense and courteous uh, measures. Because again, because the young are really not affected, I I think what we have to think about is the consequence and the burden of disease this is going to have on the elderly um, who are really the ones at highest risk. And so really, you know, we really, if you're not feeling well and there's, you know, these voluntary things, that are going on, you really need to exercise caution and uh, really just stay home. Uh, Some things are not necessary. I mean, it's very common that people go out shopping, they go to the mall, they do all kinds of social activities that are not really required, that there's no urgency in um, while they have fevers and they're not feeling well. And this is the time where we really have to clamp down on that. You know, this is the time where we really can't afford to really have this be a public health issue, which it, you know, likely it already is and likely will be even more so. So whatever we can do to control it, it's really up to us. And I think parents need to have this conversation with their children, especially. Yes, especially for those of us who have a lot of kids, different activities. Mm -hmm. They want to hang out with their friends at the movie Mm -hmm. theater. They want to go shopping. They want to go to the parks. They want to do all these kind of things. And I think one of the problems that we're seeing coming out of even Washington state, which has a lot of cases that are coming up just on a daily basis and I'm sure we'll continue to do so Mm -hmm. at a rapid rate once the tests are more available to people is that a lot of these people are going to be exposed because other mm-hmm. people are unaware that they're even carrying it, right? Like you don't know. Right. You could, you think you just have like a little thing or even beforehand from what I'm understanding, you can please correct me if I'm wrong, is that you don't mm-hmm. even have to have symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Some people don't get the symptoms uh, as, as severe as, as severe or, they, or their so symptoms are, are not even showing. Right. So you're correct in that, that majority of cases will have mild symptoms. So majority of people, meaning 80 percent of the people affected will have very mild symptoms of, you know, common symptoms that coronaviruses produce, such as cough, um, fever and, um, you know, uh, runny nose and just, you know, just generalized, you know, body aches and things like that. But it would be to a very mild degree. Um, So somebody may just think that they have the common cold and, you know, go about just, you know, going around, even if they have, you know, low grade temperatures and runny nose. And, you know, again, those are all infectious particles. Yeah. Every time you blow your nose, if you're not, if you're reusing a tissue, the proper thing to do is to, you know, use one tissue, throw it out and hand hand wash right yeah. afterwards and do that every time. Yes. If you're not practicing that properly, then, you know, what you think is a common cold, you know, a different virus or rhinovirus yeah. um, that you, you know, in fact, could be transmitting this to somebody else. Yeah. Some, just simple things, throwing it out instead of keeping it in your pocket and then touching it when you're getting your phone or your keys and all that stuff. Exactly. Um, exactly. So one thing what I was trying to get at was when you're living in a place that has a lot of people who are being tested for the virus and their tests are coming up positive and you've got a whole retirement um, 
I guess I think it's a retirement hospital in Washington state that nursing home, a yeah. nursing home, correct. A nursing mm-hmm. home in Washington state that is under quarantine with patients and staff who are at this point, it seems like it's like an, another version of that chip, right? Where people are in mm-hmm. close quarters together and the numbers keep increasing. As a person who's living in that city, do you think that it's time for when that many cases come up that it's just, you know, time, if you don't have to go out, stay home, right? Make sure you have enough to just sit at home for a while and work and whatever, like I'm I'm sure some of this, I think one of the, or two of the schools is already closed for cleaning and things like that. Um, So just setting yourself up to be able to stay home and ride it out for a little bit. Yep. So I think the general um, thing to really keep in mind is that, you know, first of all, the most important thing important thing to do is to not panic because panicking and having hysteria is really not going to help with the situation. Obviously, there's a lot that's unfolding and there are a good number of people that are being affected and we expect a lot more cases. But the best thing to do is to exert caution and listen to the authorities, meaning the Department of Health and the CDC and what your local area, what your local experts are saying. So in this kind of scenario and for everybody, what we're saying is that it's really advisable to stock up on a few weeks worth of non-perishable items and at least at least two, if not recommended, about four weeks of prescription medications so that if you do get sick, not because, you know, it's the end of the world mm-hmm. um, or that everything yeah. is going to be gone, but yeah. just because if you, God forbid, do get sick, then you don't need to go out and potentially expose more people. And this, you know, vicious cycle just keeps continuing. Exactly. Um, so or if you're not reason, even sick, you don't need to get in right. line with other sick you people. Don't need to, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if you don't have to, you really want to start limiting your exposure doesn't mean you have to stop living your life, but we have to just exercise caution and use common sense. Yes. And I'm so glad that you mentioned exercising caution and using common sense, because if you go to any of the big box stores or any just regular grocery stores, there's already things that are gone from the shelves. Um, You know, hand sanitizer has been very sparse. Masks are gone. And a bunch of other things. And I think one thing that I noticed is that vitamins are starting to go as well. Things like vitamin C, vitamin D um, and zinc. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Are those things that are going to help your immune system, especially when it comes to a respiratory disease like this for you to um, start taking these kind of supplements? So there's no good data that's going to show you that vitamins are linked to, you know, uh, less propensity or less chance of, um, you know, acquiring this illness. It's a respiratory virus that's highly contagious from just being exposed to the droplets that are around you. And when these droplets get into, you know, your mucous membranes, whether whether it be the eye, the nose, the mouth, or if you touch, you know, a surface where the infectious particles are there and these droplets have been there or other people have transmitted the virus to the surfaces um, and you touch that surface and, for example, a doorknob, you know, somebody just sneezed or, or wiped their nose and then touched a doorknob and then you go touch that doorknob and now you have those infectious particles on your hand and then you, like most people do, touch your eyes, rub your nose, you know, touch your face, all of a sudden that same virus that's there is now, you know, inside of you and you've contracted that virus. There's there's no data that shows that taking a vitamin is going to prevent that from happening and because it's a virus, there's really no treatment for it. You know, as you know, antibiotics only treat bacterial infections. they they don't, they're not effective for viral infections. You know, they are doing some clinical trials with some antiviral medications to see if they can be used to treat this. And hopefully there we will have some promising data um, coming out on that. But, you know, there's really nothing. I think the best way that I'm going to just 
you know, reiterate the same thing over and over again. The best way to really prevent this virus is with, you know, really good hand hygiene, keeping a distance from somebody who might be coughing, you know, near you, because again, these droplets are in the air. So when somebody coughs, for example, you can have about 10,000 small infectious particles, aerosols that come out. And when somebody sneezes, you can have up to like 2 million. So, you know, there's a lot of little infectious particles that come out that travel distances. So if you are basically, you know, anywhere from three to six six feet in that range, then you can, you know, these droplets can come near you and you can get infected with it. So the best way is to really, you know, hand wash, cover your cough, you know, stay away from somebody who may be coughing essentially. And, um, and those are going to be more effective disinfecting surfaces. Mm -hmm. That's going to be much more effective than any other way, really. Yeah. So basically you're better off with Lysol wipes and (laughs) some hand soap than you are with vitamins and things like that, that are not going to be helpful or might not be helpful. We don't know. We don't know the research. They're not necessarily going to be hurtful. You should still, you know, Uh, go about your usual routine, but that's not a treatment for it or something that's proven to be preventative. Yes. Uh, And speaking of treatments, one of the questions that I got on Instagram, and I think you kind Mm -hmm. of touched on this a little bit, um, Mm -hmm. you said there is no treatment right now. There Mm -hmm. are drugs that are being tested. Can you tell us about some of the things that are being used to support um, patients who are having severe enough cases to be Mm -hmm. hospitalized? Yeah. So um, the best thing that can be done for patients that are sick with coronavirus is really what's called supportive therapy. Um, So we have to just give them, you know, um, support to maintain the rest of their organs to have them function properly because the patients that are doing um, not doing well that need to be hospitalized often have severe um, lung um, illness from this. And so whether it be needing to be on a ventilator to help with their breathing or other types of oxygen support to help uh, bring their breathing up to par, uh, whether it be giving them fluids to, you know, bring them up to par and help with their blood pressure, other types of medications. Um, Really, it's all part of what's called supportive therapy to help them function as best as they can uh, while they're fighting this illness. The drugs that are, you know, being tested right now, they're not yet, like I said, there's um, there's trials actually going on in the U.S. and internationally on um, two different drugs. And um, hopefully there's some good data that comes out that we'll be able to use with that. And uh, right now it's just for investigational use. So the CDC is only releasing those drugs for confirmed cases that mm-hmm. are going to be in that clinical trial. And then there's vaccine development that's underway, but that is a pretty lengthy process. So that's not something that's necessarily for treatment. That's more something, you know, looking at further down the line as preventative measure. Okay. So two things that I would like to address from what you just said, you mentioned supportive um, therapy. What medications, if any, are available for compassionate use? So again, what I mentioned for compassionate use, this is going to be the uh, the clinical trials that are ongoing. And okay, that's so these are not things that we not normally available. already have. No, nope, no, nope, okay. we are not. There's there's really nothing that's available that people can get over the counter or even prescription. Um, these this one specific medication called remdesivir is really only being released by the CDC only for people that are testing positive. That is, it's it's regulated essentially, and it's okay. being it's in the clinical trial right now. And you know, there's another medication also. So again, the studies are still ongoing. Another medication that's more commonly used um, for other viruses, lopinavir, ritonavir, again, that's also being studied. But none of those medications are available for treatment of this because they're not, you know, essentially FDA approved right now. Um, there's still data that's being collected on, on it. Okay. Um, and then the second part of that question was, as far as the vaccine goes, is this something that, in your opinion, that you think that is going to become a seasonal 
problem that we will have to vaccinate like we do for the influenza? So there's no way of knowing right now, um, because like I said, we're in the midst of it right now. What we have seen um, from previous, you know, viral outbreaks is that, you know, we do have, so this virus essentially came similar to other, you know, viruses, especially the SARS virus. It's it's originated from a bat. So it's a uh, in the class of the coronavirus, it's a beta uh, coronavirus that originated from a bat, which then we think went to an intermediate host um, called the pangolin, which is, you know, pretty common in China. And from that animal, it then jumped to humans. So the natural course of it was not to necessarily go to humans. So we are seeing the strain, um, you know, this time around. We don't really know if this is going to be something that's going to be recurring. What usually happens with these different strains of viruses, you know, we've seen it with swine flu and MERS and SARS, um, that they sort of have their peak and then they dwindle out. You don't necessarily need to vaccinate again because, you know, it doesn't really come around the same way that it did in the past. Although there are still cases of MERS, you know, circulating, but not necessarily to the extent when the outbreak first happened. So it's too early right now to say what's going to happen. We are still just getting into it in the U.S. Okay, great. Thank you so much for answering that. I think one of the concerns that people have, and I think some of the things circulating online have perpetuated this, is that it's just like the flu that we keep talking about, and I hear it all the time um, on social media and people's posts, and oh my God, we don't talk about how many people die from the flu, and everyone is you know, really exaggerating about the coronavirus. From your medical perspective, when it comes to the coronavirus, is it something that really should make us pause more than the regular flu? And I'm saying this as someone who is pro-vaccines and whose family mm-hmm. is vaccinated against the regular flu, do you think that this is as serious, if not more serious, and it's something that should be concerning? Sure. So, um, you know, this narrative sort of keeps changing because, again, we are still, in, you know, in the midst of it and a lot more is coming our way. Um, we do know that, you know, there's so many thousands of deaths from influenza every year, you know, because we have a vaccine for it. A lot of those deaths, unfortunately, are preventable. Again, does affect people who, you know, have underlying, you know, lung disease, do worse, and, and you know, it affects children a lot more. Um, So a little bit of a different scenario. When the first SARS-CoV-2, which was essentially referred to as 2019 NCoV originally, when it was first reported because of the lack of data, just as small, you know, as the outbreak was happening in China, it seemed that it was definitely more communicable than influenza and moving at a rapid pace. But then again, initially was not as lethal. We didn't think not so much as much mortality. And we still see that there's 80% of people will still have minor symptoms. The issue is just that we are anticipating that there are going to be a lot more cases. It is going to be a public health uh, concern. And I think the the problem that's alarming is the asymptomatic um, carriers of this illness and, um, you know, just the lack of containment that's going to be an issue. I think that's really the transmissibility, um, how communicable it is and how it's going to be really difficult to contain this and the burden that it's going to place on the healthcare um um, in the healthcare settings because the hospitals are just not really equipped to handle the volume potentially um, 
of elderly population and people with underlying medical conditions that are going to be coming in since we are in the peak uh, still in influenza season and our hospitals essentially are are full of patients. Ventilators Mm -hmm. uh, are being used, our ICUs are being used, our isolation rooms and things like that. So it is definitely something that's evolving. um, And I think time is just going to tell us specifically how it does in comparison. Thank you so much for mentioning that, because like I said, the people who are like, well, I'm just going to be mildly sick or, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to the grocery store or to a concert or whatever it is, but big public settings where there will be other people and potentially people who are most vulnerable in our community. When we're thinking about this, we're essentially thinking about how to mitigate the problem for the doctors, hospitals, all of that, doctor's offices from getting overfilled. Because like you mentioned, I th- most of the ICUs are chronically filled anyway with patients um, that are already there. So when we're thinking about, should I go to the doctor's office or not? Let's say you've had a history of travel if we're going by that mm-hmm. criteria, mm-hmm. or um, there are cases in your community of human to human transfer. What is the first thing someone mm-hmm. should do when yep. they think that, you know, maybe it's not just a cold or maybe it's just not the regular flu? Sure. So the best thing to really do is to consult with your doctor. Um, What I would recommend is always a phone call because depending on your degree of illness, if um, you meet certain criteria, especially if you've had travel or Mm -hmm. contact with anybody that's been tested positive, in that scenario, we would not want you to just walk into the doctor's office and potentially, you know, exposing other people. There's certain protocol and precautions that would be taken in place. And if you, after your consultation with your doctor on the phone, if they are suspecting or if they escalate it further and discuss with their local health department. Um, If you do meet criteria requiring testing or hospitalization, then they would then call the hospital and inform them that you are going to be going there so that you are essentially triaged appropriately, limiting the amount of exposure you could have to other people. And I think this is something that you guys might have seen on news articles where it's talking about, especially like places like England, where people are calling in a number and that number is telling, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the operator is telling you Mm -hmm. if you can take yourself there in a vehicle, uh, in your own vehicle, you go in there, they let them know ahead of time. But if you can't take yourself there, they're sending an ambulance to you with paramedics Mm -hmm. who are in full gear so that they don't get sick or pass that on to other people. So I think it's really important. I'm so glad that you mentioned Mm -hmm. making that call, taking Mm -hmm. that initiative. One of the questions that I also got on Instagram was, okay, my neighbor came into contact with someone who has corona right now. Can I shake my neighbor's hand? (laughs) And I think one of the things it goes back to is like, obviously, common sense, right? Like you mentioned several times. Right, right. So, I mean, if the neighbor essentially has been in contact with somebody, then they're a person under investigation. So they essentially should be in quarantine. Uh, So, I mean, really, that person shouldn't be able to shake that person's hand. Yeah, (laughs) if everyone's (laughs) following the rules, right? Right, right, exactly. Um, So another question that I got from Instagram is, should we avoid visiting nursing home, nursing homes if it's part of our job or business or is it business as usual? I think there's a lot of this is going to be just on a case by case basis. You know, they're really it's tough because you don't want to create alarm and hysteria in the masses. But at the same time, you really so much of this is going to come down to common sense and just following your local health authorities and what's happening in your community. You know, you have to look at even in the United States, everything is very different. There's many states that have not had a single positive yet. And then other states that are more, you know, as you know, densely, you know, positive. So you have to follow the area 
know where you are. If you're, you know, follow the recommendations that are coming from your workplace, from your, you know, if it's a healthcare facility or not, and follow those guidelines really. And the most important thing is going to be to exercise caution. Caution, 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 you guys. One of the ways that people are quote unquote exercising caution is by buying up all the masks in the store. Could you tell us? I'm so glad glad you brought this up. (laughs) Because it's literally a hunt for masks is what's going on right now and hoarding and price gouging. Right. So I have to tell you, um, so because of, you know, all this coverage and the information that's been floating around, whether it be between the medical community and from the medical community to the non-medical community and just people at large. So there was this mass uh, movement to just, you know, in panic sort of where everybody ran to the store and online ordered all these masks. And as you know, internationally, there's a huge shortage of masks as well. Now there is a huge shortage in the United States as well. We do know the WHO, the CDC, everybody still, the IDSA, everybody still has been recommending a hand hygiene over masks. Masks are not been shown to be protective or preventative. In fact, the regular masks usually are only being recommended for people who in fact are sick, you know, so that they can contain their infectious droplets from, you know, coming out too much, especially, you know, in a household. But for somebody else, for the general public, masks are not really being recommended because it creates a false sense of security. So what happens is you're wearing this mask and all of a sudden you think you have protection. You know, this mask is going to protect you. First of all, you may not even be wearing it appropriately. But what happens after that is if somebody is sick around you, some of those infectious droplets then get on your mask and you're not aware that, you know, that obviously these particles are invisible. You touch the front of your mask and then you touch different parts of your face. And all of a sudden you're introducing that virus into yourself. So it's really not protecting you. Whereas because you're wearing the mask, you think you're protected and you may not be hand washing. If conversely, you just practice frequent hand washing, you would have far more protection than those masks. Now, healthcare workers are required to wear a specific type of mask called the N95 mask. Um, and people in, in healthcare actually are trained and are tested and they have to use a specific type of this. There are different sizes. It's a, a protocol on how to use these. General public does not know how to use these masks. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not really recommended for the general public either. What's happening now is because we have such a shortage in the, and again, the same thing applies for the N95 mask. The outside of it is contaminated. You're touching it and then you're touching other surfaces. You're touching your kids. You're touching, you know, your face and, you know, yeah. you're, you're not handling, you weren't trained to handle these masks appropriately the way yeah, that and you don't have are. access to some, the same things like as a decontamination room where exactly. medical uh, workers would come out, take off things exactly. in a certain exactly. order, make exactly. sure that your bare hands right. are not pulling. You know, there's a certain order of doing exactly. things yep. um, and we're not trained to do that. Exactly. Which I mean, is what's going to create a problem because then you're going to handle these inappropriately and then you're going to spread more of the infection. Whereas if you just hand wash thoroughly, that's going to protect you more than these masks. Because of the mass hysteria, actually, we have this huge shortage of masks. And in fact, regular masks are essentially really scarce in hospitals right now. And it's creating a big problem because like we said, like I said before, we are still in flu season. So those patients that are in the hospital with influenza, you know, the healthcare staff is not is at risk because they are really running out of these masks and then the n95 masks which we need for different types of illnesses such as tuberculosis and you know this uh, coronavirus um, strain we have limited supply of these also so in the next upcoming weeks you know there really is a potential problem and burden on on healthcare settings and people that are really at the front lines 
and honestly, they're the people who are getting called first. Those are the people who are you're relying on right. to hopefully make you feel better in any way that is possible at the hospital setting. So if, if you guys are still looking for masks or you're hoarding them, I would consider donating them to your local hospital <laughs> or doctor's offices, EMS, and really consider just basic hand washing skills. Right. Another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is that there is this great risk to doctors and nurses and anyone that's in the hospital or a paramedic fire department. I know that there's specifically a case in Washington state where there are firefighters who are under quarantine because they came into contact with a patient. What is the feeling amongst you and your colleagues when it comes to this virus? There's still a lot of unknown and you guys are a little bit ahead of us (laughs) when it comes Mm -hmm. to the average American. But what is the feeling amongst your community when it comes to this virus? So there's a spectrum because, again, it depends on, you know, what specialty you're in, what position you're in, whether you're, you know, a respiratory therapist, um, a paramedic, um, an internist, a pharmacist, you know, depends what your role is in the healthcare industry or, you know, an infectious disease physician. So based on your role, it's going to really dictate, you know, how much um, exposure you have and, you know, what your thoughts are, because everybody has different thoughts on this. Obviously, as infectious disease physicians, we are front of the line. We're the first ones that are going to be called for all of this. And we are being called and we have been in the past. You know, we this is not unusual for us. You know, we have been through swine flu. We've been through SARS. We've been through Ebola. You know, we this is pretty much usual for us. You know, these epidemics, pandemics happen and it's the nature of the job. You know, uh, on one hand, this is always evolving and it's science and it's exciting for us. At the same time, we are at risk and that's just generally it comes with the job. And the same thing goes with other healthcare providers, whether it be EMS, paramedic, uh, paramedics or, you know, ER physicians or phlebotomists, whoever it may be. You know, we have all assumed this role by working in the healthcare industry. We have all been trained in, you know, standard practices and protocols and infection prevention measures. And, you know, if we already have developed these good habits, which are required by us, it really prepares us for things like this. But this is obviously another level where we have to do even more um, training and more preparation. But as long as you practice things the way that it's supposed to be, it will mitigate some of that. But obviously there is you know, a level of anxiety between, um, you know, amongst healthcare workers and different levels. But we just have to remain calm and keep the public calm and try to provide the best care that we can for our patients. And I'm wishing you guys all the best. There's a lot of sisters who've been on the show who are doctors and who are in the front lines of any outbreak like this and just regular illnesses Mm -hmm. that they have to deal with. So we're keeping all of you guys in our du'as and all the other doctors out there in the world. Do you think that America is going to reach the same level of trying to contain and mitigate the damages like we've seen in China or Italy or even Iran? There is no way to tell right now. We we know for a fact that the virus has been around for several weeks. Um, We are expecting a lot more cases. We are sort of underreporting a lot because of the criteria that was established. And again, because we are, it's an evolution and everything's in flux, things do change. So the criteria that was established by the CDC has changed several times about who meets the criteria for testing, what are the requirements. So we most likely, you know, almost can say with confidence, have a lot more cases out there than we are aware of. So only time will tell how things progress. And again, there's always a seasonal variation to these kind of viruses. We have 
to see what happens, you know, with that, with the climate, we have to see, but we are expecting that the next several months, there will be continuous peaks on this. Okay, so having said that there will be continuous peaks, do you think that even though right now we see from the CDC, we see from who that um, they're not using the P word, P for pandemic, you guys. Um, Mm -hmm. So do you think that that they will start using that? Seeing as a lot of countries, I think last Mm -hmm. night when I went to sleep, there was Mm -hmm. 67 countries Mm -hmm. um, with it. And now today when I just checked before we got on this call, it was 74 out of 195 countries in the world, give or take Taiwan, if you want to say. Um, So uh, do you think that this is something that they might come out with? And are they just kind Mm -hmm. of biding time to see or trying to get mitigation in order? Yeah, I think it's very likely. Um, And, you know, I think it's just essentially going to be a formality. We already know that it's spread globally and every country essentially is taking precautions and it's it's there. It's already affected so many countries and I, I wouldn't be surprised. And having said that, it's spring break next week, right? For a lot mm-hmm. of elementary schools, high schools, um, college students are wrapping up exams and getting ready for their spring break. Do you think that maybe taking a step back and looking at the big picture of what's going on in the world right now that maybe postponing flights is a reasonable request to make of people? Or do you think Mm -hmm. with common sense things like washing your hands, not going out in public if you're sick and all those other things, do you think that that would be more of something that works than asking people to just not travel? Right. So I think, again, same thing. A lot of this is going to be individual. It's a lot of this is going to be, you know, um, like you said, common sense. Uh, The more that you are out, obviously, in large gatherings and public places, and we know that there's this is ongoing, that there is obviously going to be more risk to you of being exposed as opposed to, you know, uh, being local and, and things of that nature. So you really have to exercise caution and think about what kinds of environments are you going to put yourself in is, you know, from the area where you're traveling from in the area that you're going to or is there a dense population that's affected or are you going to have more chance of being exposed potentially because of where you're traveling to think about you know airports and and airlines and uh, flights and you know mass transit it's a lot of people in a in a small confined area so you have to think about that obviously um, like I said before you can't stop life either. You know, mm-hmm. you have to live your life and you have to look at, you know, everything in perspective. And again, use common sense and wash your hands and keep your distance from people that may be coughing, uh, obviously coughing near you. But, um, you know, also be courteous and don't go into a whole, you know, panic phase and certainly don't discriminate. And, you know, this is something that we are probably going to see more and more how um, culturally, how we may be seeing a lot of, you know, because of the mass hysteria, you know, unfortunately, I think we are going to be seeing, you know, uh, you know, the bad side of this. And yeah, there's already a lot of uh, hate crimes against um, Asian people. um, And just really unfortunate. It's it's I think it's it's usually the worst of humanity when we get to something exactly. like this and those t- exactly. t- kind of things come out. Um, and I think it's I think it's an opportunity for us to be kind. Um, Absolutely. I think we have to educate people. People need to know. Um, I think, you know, humanity is so important at a time like this. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it starts in the home and it starts with the children. I think that's where you have to start it because I know it's starting at a very young age where, uh, you know, because it's in the media so much, because it's, you know, uh, in, on everybody's minds, this is something that's being talked about all the time. So children, even the youngest of them are constantly hearing about it and they're cognizant, they're aware of all this. And you don't know 
know what's happening, you know, in the schools and on the school bus. So you really need to have that conversation and make sure that, you know, people are being kind and not, uh, you know, uh, having prejudice or, you know, against any one group of people. Yes. And that's the case for anything, not even just Corona, but life in general, life Uh, in general. Exactly. uh, And just to keep that in mind when you're dealing with people or you're speaking with your children about this disease or just talking about it at home. um, One of the things that I wanted to speak to you about was the mental health aspect of um, an epidemic or a pandemic in the community. How can we set ourselves up to have, you know, less anxiety or to worry less about something like this that's completely out of our control outside of what we can do to mitigate our own um, chances of getting it when it comes to hand washing, sanitizing surfaces, not going out if you're sick and staying away from sick people. Because I read something a little while ago that said that you should talk about this, but you shouldn't talk about it to the point that it's becoming like almost obsessive, like you're just refreshing, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, right. um, the right. CDC or whose website. Right. Um, but also so I think- that we should kind of gradually prepare people by mm-hmm. talking about it in a way that they'll understand. So it's not a shock um, right. to the system when that comes up. So I think a couple of things here. It's a really important topic. Um, So I think the first thing is when you're relaying information, when you're having that conversation, you want to make sure that it's a, you know, level headed sort of conversation and not it's not like an alarmist kind of conversation, because so much of it depends on who delivers the message, how the message is delivered and how that person who's getting the message is going to perceive that. So if you are sending a message, an alert out, you know, with, you know, bells ringing and, you know, flashing lights and you're coming across like it's doomsday, then obviously there's going to be massive anxiety, um, you know, and it's not going to have good, good outcome. The other thing is because of media and social media, this is something that is constantly like, you know, being recycled, that that creates a lot of anxiety. So at some point, you know, it's important to get the message out, but it's also equally important to let people know that, you know, it's okay to turn off for a little bit, give your mind a break, you know, stop watching the news for a few minutes, stop, you know, going on Facebook every second, you know, because again, um, so much information is being spread so rapidly that we don't, you know, even know if a lot of that information is accurate. So you also have to educate people to make sure that your source is accurate. You get information from the CDC, from the WHO, from Infectious Disease Society of America, you know, you have to direct people to the right source, but you also have to tell them that, listen, um, you know, at some point for your mental health being, for your well-being and for your mental health, you know, you have to at some point turn off that, you know, news channel, turn off Facebook, Twitter, wherever you might be to give your mind a little break, you know, um, so that you're not overwhelmed because all of that constant um, engagement and bombardment is going to lead to some level of anxiety. Perfect. That is such great advice. Um, Thank you for sharing that with us. And I think one of the things that we can do is instead of talking about it, get our house ready for it, prepare for it in the sense that like, obviously don't go crazy, guys. Don't hoard things, um, save things for the neighbors. Um, (laughs) But just making sure that if we do get sick, that we don't have to go get things that we need. Um, Like you mentioned, getting your prescriptions in order. Um, If you take daily medications, um, cleaning supplies, that if you do get sick, that you can um, hopefully be able to contain it to one space in your house and be able to clean that area up doorknobs and light switches, all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But just thinking about it from a common sense, planning ahead perspective, not a, oh my God, it's the end of the world. I should go buy 20 cases of hand sanitizer. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. 
Um, so I want you guys to keep all of that in mind. So for people who are looking for resources, obviously they can follow you on Instagram. Absolutely. You mm-hmm. sharing information. That's how I found you. Um, <laughs> and also, I guess the CDC who am I missing anyone else? Um, I'm assuming local health departments. Yep, health departments, state health departments are very important because they'll have the most up-to-date information. The CDC, the WHO, and also um, Infectious Disease Society of America. So these are really reliable sources to turn to. But definitely the local health department because that information will be most relevant for where you are. Yeah, and that's the ones that will be making decisions about Mm -hmm. work and school. I'm getting that information out to people who really need to be aware whether there's a case in your area. All that information will go through them and all of the other departments. Um, Dr. Sayed, thank you so much for coming on today's episode. Before we do wrap up, am I missing anything? Is there anything else that you would like to share with the audience that you think that it's important for them to know? I think we covered everything. I just do want to briefly, very quickly touch on one more thing that was prevalent overseas that we might see coming uh, in the coming days because we are expecting more cases here. Just sort of a public service announcement is that whenever there's something bad happening, unfortunately, people take advantage of that. So there have been reports of coronavirus scams. So I think people need to sort of be aware of this and be really cognizant. If you get a call or an email from somebody claiming to be, you know, the WHO, the CDC and saying that, you know, given give me your login credentials and I'll let you know if you're at risk of having coronavirus. Um, do not give in to that. Um, that's a scam. Um, you know, these organizations do not usually redirect you outside of their, you know, web browser. So, you know, there are some scams out there um, citing that they're WHO and it takes you, it makes you click on something, takes you somewhere else. There's a lot of phishing scams. Usually WHO won't send out emails with um, file attachments. They won't ask, you know, money for a job or for research or for funding. So just things to be aware of that, you know, now, especially because there may be anxiety in the community and the general population and people may start panicking. You don't want them to fall for something like this because this is something that we can see really happening. It's already happened abroad and I can see it happening, you know, here even more so. So just something to be aware of. That's great advice. And I think for those of you who are listening, this is a conversation that I would also suggest you have with the older members of your family mm-hmm. um, yep. who are more susceptible to things like this, who are might not be aware of like, you know, who's going to email them, who's going to make a call. Um, and also the younger teenagers who do have a lot more access to phones and computers these days. And just have that conversation as a family um, and let them know that these scams are going around and to avoid them the same way that we would with the, the princess emailing for the money and the IRS calling you. Um, So just take the same precautions that you would and just make make people in your family aware of what's going on. Absolutely. Dr. Sayed, thank you so much for coming on and debunking these myths, sharing all of this awesome advice with us. I hope that, you know, the next few weeks and months are easy on you. I know it's a lot (laughs) of work and, you know, you're doing several different things. So may Allah put Baraka in your time and your energy and um, inshallah continue to give you shifa much. Thank you for having me. Hope it was helpful. It was very helpful. Thank you so much. And as always, our guests' contact information and social media handles will be in the show notes. You guys can read it there as well as at naptimeissaker.com. And I'll also be sharing the links for and more information from the CDC as well as the World Health Organization. 
Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the Nap Time is Sacred podcast. Don't forget to subscribe in iTunes. And while you're at it, please leave a rate and review so we can get this podcast out to more people. To connect, you guys can find me on social media under the handle at Nap Time is Sacred. That's going to be on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, for more of my work and these episodes, check out naptimeissacred.com. Until next time, stay positive and work towards the life that you want. Thank you.